John chapter 11. John chapter 11, and we're going to read verse, starting in verse 17, and we're going to go to 37. It's a couple big paragraphs. We're going to get the whole piece of the story in here tonight. A story I think that you are probably very familiar with, but maybe not from the angle we're going to look at it. Let's read together. Um, I'll read John 11, beginning of verse 17. Now when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them. Keep that in mind because we're going to refer to that. Concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Mary's going to say the exact same thing in verse 32. We're going to get there. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, there it is again, second time, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved them? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Tonight I want to impress on you your need for God in times of grief. In fact, I want to go so far as to say that God is what you need in your grief more than anyone or anything. This is what I would call, not in a romantic way that the world calls it, but I would call this one of the biblical love stories. Um, The word love or loved is used 40 times in the Gospel of John. 38 out of 40 of them are used in the passion, passion narrative. In other words, from chapter 13 on. Only two of them are used outside of that. So what we find out just in that one simple detail is that from chapter 13 on, um, we're going to see that loving is going to be manifested primarily in Jesus dying. And, and, and you can see it for yourself, although we didn't read it. If you read the very first few verses in John 11, it says, 
blatantly in verse 3 of chapter 11. They said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I mean, it's not really too hard to figure out, if you've read the Gospels, that the love that Jesus has for this family, the two sisters and her brother, is pretty much unparalleled for any other person that he loves. Other than Peter, James, and John um, as a group of disciples that are his inner circle, other than them and maybe the disciples as a whole, um, his love expressed for them is beyond anyone else. So this is a very close-knit relationship, and he loves these uh, people dearly which surprises us that he would show up four days late, but he does, and that's what the text reads. And so when you get there, um, I have a slide. I've shown it before. I didn't put it on here tonight. But just maybe a few, you know, maybe a, a quarter of a mile maybe outside of the village is a place where there was a well. So if you walked by, if you went by the village in Bethany, you could get a drink on your way past. And that's where Jesus and the disciples stopped first, outside the village. And Martha is there. Maybe she's there because she realizes that perhaps Jesus could be there any time. Maybe she just needed to be up by herself. The Bible really doesn't say, but she's out there. And she sees Jesus outside the village. Now, later, Jesus is going to walk up the little walkway to the village area and come to their house. But what I want to draw your attention to tonight is not the details of the story in that way. What I'd like to do is make a contrast and a comparison between Mary and Martha's response to grief and, and how Jesus, I should say, more responds to them. Now, the interesting thing in the text that I feel, and I'm going to try to prove it to you, that's very significant tonight, is that Martha and Mary both ask Jesus the same question. I think they either must have talked about it together over the previous four days when Jesus didn't show up, or minimally because their sisters are thinking the exact same thing. I mean, I think one of the most difficult things for them to have handled was that Jesus, I mean, even the crowd says it. I mean, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, I mean, he could have kept him from dying. And they are all kind of wondering, and why wasn't he here? So it's a little bit of a tension to figure out all the terms about loving them so much, but not showing up. And then we find out that Jesus didn't do it, per he did it purposely, makes it more difficult to even understand at one point. But what I want to draw your attention to tonight is how Jesus does not respond at all in the same way to the same question. Martha asks the question or says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Mary, a few verses later, says the exact same thing. But what I wanted you to see tonight is that Jesus doesn't respond to them in the same way. And I think it's significant. If you read, as we just did, and, and, and meditate on it a little bit, you'll find that Jesus talks to Martha first, who's outside the village. And when she says the statement, Lord, if you had been here, I wouldn't have, my brother wouldn't have died, he has a dialogue with her. There's a conversation with her. And he begins to challenge her faith and that she shouldn't doubt him. And he gives her some real theological truth of the fact that, um, I know he's going to rise at the, again at the last day, but he says this, I am, I mean, it's one of the greatest I am statements. Jesus makes one to the, to, in this situation to her. I mean, he gives her some great revelation of who he really is. I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he says, don't you believe that if you believe in me, you'll never die? I mean, it's a great conversation. I've used that text at many, many gravesides and funerals that I've done. And so you get a verbal response to Martha, who makes the statement about she wished he had been here. But if you go down a few verses, as we read tonight, and you get to the place where Mary says the same thing to him. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
he hardly says anything. He doesn't discuss theology with her. He doesn't give her a revelation of who he is in some I am statement. The only thing he really says to her is, where have you laid him? That's really the only thing. There's not any great dialogue. But what you do see is not so much a verbal response, but an emotional response. And and one of the greatest verses that you could possibly memorize. (laughs) It's easy, right? Jesus wept. And the word wept, there's two words for crying in Greek. One means to cry normally, and one means to cry sobbing uncontrollably, like your shoulders are shaking. If you've ever been to a funeral and seen that, I've seen more than that. Um, And and this is the word for Jesus. He's not just shedding a few tears at the loss of a friend that he hardly knew. No, he's shaking. He's crying uncontrollably. So you get the theological speak the truth part over here, and you get the shed the tears part over here. And, And so you get one of them has the response of unforgettable words, and Mary gets unforgettable weeping. And, and you get both of them. So my thought was, why? Why does Jesus say stuff to Martha and not really say any of those things to Mary? Why does Jesus cry when he talks to Mary, but he doesn't cry when he talks to Martha? Why does it happen? And even so, why did John record it in his gospel? If you read the end of John's gospel, we won't turn there, but if you read chapter 21, the very last few verses of the entire gospel, here's what John says, and there are many other things that Jesus did that I suppose if I recorded them all, even the world itself should not, would not be able to contain the books that should be written. So you've got to understand, Jesus did way, way more things and said way more things that are in the Gospels. And only eternity will tell that we'll be able to understand all of those things. So that means this. John selectively chose the parables, the teachings, the miraculous things, and the conversation. So this is purposely through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The writer John puts this in here because I believe there's an incredibly valuable lesson that he wants to learn us about how God ministers to people, and if we reflect him and seek to be like him, that we should do the same to those who are in grief. So let me answer the question for you. Why does John put both of them in here, these conversations? He could have just said one and not the other. But he puts both of them, and he puts them side by side. He wants us to see them as parallels and contrast to see how different they are. And here's why. Because I think this is true in every gospel as the main idea of why they were written. There's two things, and we're going to unpack them, just each one tonight, just two. So why this passage? Why this way? Not only did it just happen, of course, but two things. Number one, it tells us who is Jesus, who he is. And then it's going to tell us, number two, why did he come? What did he come to do? Okay, both of those are important, and I'm just going to tell you the, the, the final verdict on tonight's message, what you're supposed to get out of it. I'm going to tell you up front so you can keep thinking about it, right? And you need both of those in your grief. You need to be able to understand, comprehend, and apply both of these truths. Number one, in your grief, you need to recognize and remember who Jesus is and what he came to do. And let me tell you what that means and what that looks like, all right? So let's, let's unpack them one at a time. Who Jesus is, okay? He is the God-man, okay? Now, I'm going to give you a big 
I'll ask, I'll ask someone. There, there's some theologians in here tonight, right? Does anyone know what the systematic theology term called the hypostatic union mean? The hypostatic union. Anybody get that? If you don't, you can muse this on people. Show them how smart you are, right? Hypostatic union. Okay, if you don't know, it is a theological term, not in the Bible, of course, but it means the union of two states, okay? Hypo means super. It's like the super union of two things that don't normally go together, right? Here's what they are. Jesus is 100% God, and he's 100% man, okay? So when I say tonight, who is Jesus? Here's what the text teaches us. Now, normally you might consider this a Christmas message, um, but here it is more like an Easter, closer to Easter in the Bible, but it's relevant for us tonight as we think about grief. You need to know who is Jesus? Well, he's the God-man. He's not, listen to this, he's not just God, and he is not just man. Remember Charles Wesley's song that we're about to sing here again at Christmas time? Hark the herald angels sing. What's the verse say? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail what? Hail the incarnate deity. You see what Wesley's doing? He's, he's poetically telling you about the hypostatic union. It's in our songs. It's a theological concept. And he's telling you, see, that's who Jesus is. He is incarnate deity. He is God and he is man. So you would say hypostatic union. Okay, it's a big term. I don't even know what it means. I, I don't, I'm not going to probably say it again. So how can it really matter? Because a lot of people think that, and, I'm, and sometimes it's because of our presentation of it and we're boring about it, that theology is abstract. Can I tell you this? It is not true. It's only because we make it boring that it is. But it's not because it is in reality. Because the hypostatic union is incredibly a concrete truth. In other words, it matters. And here's how it matters. It matters in your grief. Can I tell you one of the most important things that you could grasp when you lose someone that you love or you're attending a funeral and your life is feel like you're wrecked and, and everything's falling apart and you can't stop crying? You know what you need? You need the hypostatic union. You need to know this about who Jesus is, that he is God and he is man. He is the God-man. Let me show you what I mean. In chapter 11 and verse 19, it says that there were people around Martha and they were, here's the word, consoling her. And the same exact term is used in Mar Mary's instance in chapter 11, verse 31. When they were, she was back at the house and when she got up, she thought they were going to go to the tomb and weep, but they had been sitting around because she was sitting in the house and they were trying to console her. The Greek word for console is a compound, two-part word, and it means to come alongside with words. That's what it means. It means to come alongside someone and tell them the things that they need to hear. Now, that's what we're saying about Jesus, what he did, right? But they also says in both instances that they're also sitting there weeping with her. So here's what they're doing. They're sharing truth and shedding tears. Now, you couldn't ask much better because we're going to see that that's the pattern that Jesus is going to do. But can I tell you this? As good as it is and as necessary it is and as loving as it is, it's not enough. You know why? Because those people only are human. Jesus can do something on a level that nobody else can because when he consoles you, 
He's not just 100% man, although he is. He's not human. He is deity. See, what you get from Jesus consoling you in your grief, you can't get from anybody else. He is the God man. And so you know why John records both these conversations? Because he wants people like us who face grief on a huge level or scale to know that only in Jesus can you get what I call a full-orbed consolation. Only can you get from the God-man what you can't get anywhere else. In the moment of your greatest trouble, you need two ministries. Ready? You need the ministry of truth, and you need the ministry of tears. You need both of them. Not, listen, not truth without tears, and not tears without truth. You need both God's words and God's weeping. You need them both. We need, in our grief tonight, we need a God who can stand before us and speak truth, and a God who can sit beside us and shed tears. We need both of them, and Jesus is God. Man. He does both in the text. When Jesus comes to to help her, Martha, in her grief, you know what he does? He speaks truth. I'm the resurrection and the life. Don't you believe this? He's challenging her. So you know what we need? On one hand, we need someone who will speak truth. Jesus does that. But we also need someone who will shed tears. He doesn't say hardly a word to Mary. But you know what he does? He sees her weeping. He sees everybody else weeping. And he weeps. He sheds tears. So when it comes to comforting others, let me give you a hint. If you haven't been able to figure this out or, or do as good a job as you'd like to do, When it comes to giving comfort and consolation to others at Faith Baptist Church who are going through grief and you're trying to help them, um, we need to do both. Now, here's the issue, and and I'm going to tell you my own limitation in this too. Um, Most of the time, most of us, are because our personalities and our temperaments are such that we're either good with the truth or we're good with the tears. Not a lot of people are good with both. but we're working on it. I know I'm working on it. So, and and this is why I asked one of the questions on the survey. Are you a fixer or a feeler? Because if you only saw Jesus responding to Martha's grief, you'd think, well, Jesus is a fixer, and he is, right? And, And you know what a fixer is? Fixers are people who are characterized by being about truth, but not too much with tears, They're good at analyzing things, but they're not so good at sympathizing um, because they're not quite enough like Jesus yet. See, they spout Bible verses, and maybe they even annoy you a little bit because they are saying cliches like, you know, you're you're so-and-so that you love. They're in a better place. Um, They're the people who really struggle entering into your pain. They want to encourage you, but they'd rather give you three bullet points about what you need to do to get past this in your life. They're fixers, right? Now, I have to admit for me that that's me. I'm more of a fixer than a feeler. Um, I I love solutions. I love answers to problems. So most of the time, instead of shedding tears, I I would like to speak truth to people. I would like to analyze their problem and say, hey, I know this is what you're going through, but let me tell you, this is what you should do. Let me, boom, boom, boom. And then then when this happens, try this and do this, and and I want to fix it for them. And that's a good thing, but it's only half of it. It's only half of it. 
And then there's, flip it over, there's the feelers. The feelers are people who are mostly tears and not so much truth. Um, they're not like Jesus enough either. Um, they find it easy, and, and I love this about them, I, they find it easy to enter into the pain of other people. You cry? I mean, they just start crying. I mean, I, and sometimes they don't even have to know you that well. They just know that you're upset, seeing people upset. These are the people who are watching fictional characters on TV, and they start crying, even though the whole story or the people aren't even real. But they're feelers. They can feel the pain. They're like, oh, my word, how can they do that to each other? And this is just on a show or reading a book of all things, but even without pictures, they start crying. They're feelers. Um, they're very, very sympathetic. Great at listening, even at long periods of time. They're, they're great at just hearing you say the same thing or not be able to finish sentences. You're so choked up. They're, they're, they're really good at that, but they're not so great about giving you some truth if you needed it. They're, they're certainly not very good at confronting people and telling them probably what they need to hear at certain times. It's hard for them. And I found out for me that recently in the last couple years when my mom and my dad died, that my family wanted me to do both of their funerals. So, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing, isn't it, just to go to your loved one's funeral? I mean, but then to officiate the whole thing and then do the sermons? Um, not an easy thing. And I found for myself that I thought I would be good because I am a fixer. And so I figured, you know, I've done a million funerals, and I'm going to preach my mom and dad's funeral, but then you get up there, and you get to parts where you're talking about them and what they meant to you and what their life was like, and, and you start to cry while you're doing it. That, that, listen, that may not bother you, but I, I, I don't want to do that if I can help it. Um, but I did. And you know what? I came away thinking, like, I try to shy away from that, but you know what? I came to the realization afterwards that that's just the way it ought to be. It's the way it ought to be. You know why? Because we shouldn't be fixer or feeler. I don't want to just cry there but have nothing good to say. But I want to be both. I, I, I want to be both. I don't know if you would consider yourself more of a fixer or a feeler, but if you want to be like Jesus and you want to minister to people in grief, you know what people need? They need a ministry of truth at times, and you've got to have discernment to know when and what. And they also need a ministry of tears. That's why we have Martha, and that's why we have Mary. Because both of those put together show us who Jesus is. He is the God-man, right? He can speak the truth. God does that. And as God, he also can cry and weep with us. But that's not all this passage teaches us about God and your grief. Number one, it teaches us who Jesus is, but number two, it teaches us what Jesus came to do. And I would tell you that you, ha you can't have the one without the other. They are connected, and they both are incredibly meaningful, and we have to keep them from being separated. And let me show you what I mean. In chapter 11, in verses 33 and 38, notice it's a very unusual word, and I'm going to tell you how important it is. In verse 33, uh, you know, 32, Mary says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So here's what Jesus, so it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, here it is, he was deeply moved. Now, depending on what translation you have, it could be all kinds of different things. The same exact word is used down in verse 38. Again, second time. Then Jesus, there it is, see it again, deeply moved again. 
Okay? Now, let me tell you why translators shy away from translating it, in my opinion, like it should be done. Let me tell you the other ways translators use this word in the Gospels and how it was translated. Matthew 9, 30, here's, and they're, they're all about Jesus except the last one. It says, Jesus sternly warned. That's the way it's translated in Matthew 9 and 30. Sternly warned. I mean, straight at you, he's, he's saying it. Mark 1, 43, same, sternly charged them. That's what Jesus said. In other words, he just said it so straight you couldn't miss it. I mean, he was right there. Mark 14, 5, the disciples, remember the lady that comes in and she pours the whole alabaster box on Jesus and the perfume fills the house and it costs 300 denarii, which would be a year's wage. And, and remember how Judas got upset because he was keeping the money bag and he would have got a little bit off of that, you know? Here's what it says. And he, they scolded her. That's how the same word translate they scolded her i remember they got angry and they started almost like they're yelling at her you know what the word literally means if you took the pieces of the word together and put it it means to snort with anger snort we don't say snort too much anymore do we it's kind of like this <sighs> have you ever done that i mean that's the kind of idea it's like your nostrils flare out a little bit and you, you really get upset have you ever been that mad i mean your kids probably do a little bit like that i hope you don't too much but but that's what it means to snort with anger. Now, imagine that. You know, in Jesus, it's, imagine if they translated, and Jesus deeply snorted again. I mean, it's probably not going to happen in any versions I know coming up anytime soon. But they don't like to, they don't like to translate. Why? Because for some reason, translators don't want to have people imagine that Jesus got angry, that angry, especially at a time like this. I mean, Eugene Peterson has, it's not really a translation, it's more of a paraphrase. It's so liberal in how it, 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 meaning it's really wide open about how he translates everything. But in this one case, on this verse, he got it right. He translates it deeply angry. And that's right. That's about as best you can do. And the question is, why was he angry? Now, before I tell you that, I gotta put, I, let me digress a little bit and fill in the blank for you. Let me answer, ask and answer another question, then I'm going to come back and get to that. Um, and that is, have you ever wondered when you read this text how Jesus could weep at the tomb of Lazarus knowing that within just minutes he was going to raise him from the dead? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, how could Jesus' tears be sincere? I mean, you know that you're going to interrupt this funeral and everybody who's crying is going to be in a moment, they're going to turn the tears into incredible joy. They're going to start jumping around and having a party. They're going to celebrate. You know why? Because this guy's going to be alive. <coughs> so, it wasn't, again, let me remind you, it wasn't just Jesus crying. He was uncontrolled. He was sobbing. How can that be? Well, here's what I have come up with. And I don't know if it's for sure right, but it's just my theory. I've read other people who see the same thing. And that is, I think that in order to cry like that and have it be real, he can't be just crying for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It can't be just them because he loves them so much and he's going to raise them from the dead. He knows that this is not, at least for now, it's not ultimate. He's going to come back to life because he's going to raise them from the dead. So it can't be that he's crying, oh, it's never going to What am I going to do without them? No, it's not that. It can't be. That can't be the only reason, right? Not to sustain that kind of crying, it has to be something else. It has to be more. And, and here's my theory. 
My theory is not only can Jesus weep because he loves that family so much, because I think he sees more. I think standing there at that graveside, Jesus is not only seeing that his friend died, but he's seeing all the funerals that are going to take place that he won't be there to interrupt. You know, I can tell you, and so can many of you, Jesus wasn't there to interrupt the funeral for my parents. And he wasn't there for your friends and your loved ones and your family either. And I think Jesus, looking down the quarters of time, I think he said, you know what, I can stop today, but look at this. And it broke him up. In fact, it did more than just break him up. It made him angry. And so I asked, now he has to be angry. That's the answer to crying, so let me go back. Why was he angry then? Why in the world could he, was he angry? Well, the answer is because of what caused everybody's tears. Not only the tears of Mary and Martha that day because of Lazarus, but all, but all, all the, what was causing the tears that would be at every funeral, including mine and yours and everybody you've gone to. What in the world? He's so angry at what? Because he knows what causes it. You know what that is? Sin and death. He it looks down the quarters of time and he says, you know who the enemy is? You know what the ultimate culprit is that causes this grief? Sin, which leads to death. That's what he says. Don't turn there, but in, this, in Luke's gospel, the only other recorded time in all the gospels that Jesus cries is Luke 19. His final journey to Jerusalem, he's standing on the Mount of Olives. He overlooks the entire city, and it is panoramic. It's a beautiful view. If you've ever been there or get a chance to, it is amazing to be able to see the whole city laid out there. And the Bible says he looked over the city, and he... Now, look, same two verbs in Luke as in John. He saw them weeping. He sees the city Jesus wept. Jesus wept. They're the same verbs. Jesus is standing over, looking at the city uncontrollably crying. He's shaking. Why? Because I do not think that the only thing he saw that day was the rejection of Jerusalem and the people in it that would lead to his crucifixion. But I think what he saw was all the cities down in time and all the people in them that even after he died who would still reject him and in his words, who would forfeit their own peace. I think it makes him angry. Angry at what sin and death has done to the creation of humanity that he has made. Now, what is he going to do about it? Let me show you what kind of God-man he is. At the end of the story, in the text I did not read to you, let me read verses 45 through 53, because remember, the second point is, why is it put in the Bible here? Why is this text here? Why both sisters answer this, but he shows different responses? Who he is what he came to do. Let me show you verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But there's another group. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, look at their concern. Everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, meaning the temple. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people 
not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest this year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only. Get this. But to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I mean every Jew and Gentile that would ever come to know him. See this? Now watch. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What day? The day that he raised Lazarus from the dead. You know why? Because now it's the tipping point. Jesus knows this, that this miraculous thing he's doing, raising Lazarus from the dead, is going to push the enemies that he has, the Pharisees, religious leaders, it's going to push him over the top. Hey, if you heal someone here, you break a Sabbath rule. They didn't like it. It was bad enough. But now, look what they said. Now he's getting to the point where he is raising people from the dead. You know what? Everybody's going to believe on him. And what are we going to do? The Romans are going to come. This is going to be a war. And we're going to lose everything. This raising of him from the dead, showing that Jesus is the God-man, pushed them over the top. And Jesus comes to this realization if he brings Lazarus out of the tomb, he is basically putting his own self in the tomb. You see that? He's basically saying that to interrupt this funeral, I am causing my own. <laughs> and that's what he's about. He loves his, this family. He loves his nation. And he's angry because this is going to lead to death and they are going to, by and large, reject him. Have you ever been so much in love with someone that you get angry? Do you know anger can be an expression of love? Often it is not, but it can be. You ever been so mad because you love someone so much and someone is mistreating them, talking about them? Someone says something about your wife. Someone says something about your children. You're going to talk to my kids like that? And you start, well, you get a little angry. Why? Because you love them so much. Can I tell you this? Jesus is getting angry. You know why? Because the enemies are coming up and their sin and their death and they're going to destroy people, including his own people. And so he doesn't just get sad about it, he gets mad about it. See? And that causes them to take action. And so when you hear, next time someone preaches on this or next time you hear a text, this text read, and when Jesus says, Liz, Lazarus, come out, you got to know what those words meant. And Jesus knew what they meant, that when I call him to come out, I am basically sending myself in, that I'm going to die. This is the beginning of the end for him, the beginning of the end for him. So what do you need? You need God in your grief. The one you need in your grief, you need the God man, the God who will speak the truth, and will shed tears. You need a God who knows all that you're facing and also has power, but he knows this, that they're going to kill me and they're going to crucify me over it and I'm going to suffer, but in my love for people, I'm willing to do that because that is how the grief is solved. Even though I won't be able to show up at everybody's funeral and interrupt it and stop it from happening or, or keeping happening, listen, I am going to take care of it ultimately, see, so what is God, what is Jesus in your grief? Well, he is transcendent and he's imminent. 
He is transcendent in that he knows everything. He has all power. He can even conquer death. But he's imminent. He's not just a God who stands back in your grief and says, oh, I'm all cosmic power and I have all this and I know everything. And No, you know what he does? He comes right down beside you where you are. He sits with you. You cry, he cries. He can feel it. And the feelings and the tears are legitimate. They're real. You know why? Because he's not only almighty, but he's all merciful. He's a God that created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he created you, and he knows everything about your schedule. He knows the tears that you cry when no one else is around. He knows when you feel alone. He knows when you think that you can't go on another day, that you can't handle this situation that you're in, and you're not how you're going to make it, and you're not sure where the money's coming from and how you're going to pay the mortgage. And he knows that when you're upset and it's making you sick, and he knows why you go to the doctor, and he, he knows. And he's done something about it. You know why? Because all he could do was to cry with you. It wouldn't be that much help. You could get that from anyone. But in your grief, know this. He's not just man. Although he is that. He is God. Can I close with this tonight? You know what I learned from Jesus in this text? Not only the things I've shared with you tonight. But I've learned on a personal level. That if you really love someone. It will always at some point in some level involve suffering. It will. That you will be disappointed by them. You will be hurt by them, maybe even rejected by them. And you will sacrifice for them, and they may not even appreciate it. See, see, Jesus was the God-man, and yet he was rejected, and he was betrayed, and he was denied, but he loved anyways. And see, you might be here tonight, and you've been hurt by that. And you, you say, I've had enough grief in my life, and I don't really want any more. So you're, you're not really thinking, I want to risk loving anyone. Not to that level anymore. And see, C.S. Lewis says, if, if you don't want to risk and suffer being loved, he says, then take your heart and bury it in a coffin, because you'll be far better off. But he says, if you really want to live, and you really want to love, Lewis says, then you're going to hurt and you might suffer for it. But can I tell you that that's who Jesus is. <laughs> that's why he came. And that's why you can have God in your grief. And, and I hope tonight that that not only encourages you in your own grief, but it'll help you be able to minister to others and theirs as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for John 11, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for including it in the canon. Thank you for the hypostatic union of Jesus. We pray, God, that as we go through grief, and and we don't know what days ahead may bring, what kind of grief may come our way, but here's what we know, that we have the God-man with us. Emmanuel, Jesus. He knows the truth about our situation, and he knows how we feel about it. And he is with us on both accounts. Thank you for him. Thank you that he is God. Lord, may we learn from him that we might be fixers and feelers and that when we have opportunity to minister to others, we might be able to speak truth and shed tears that we might bring comfort to them in their grief as you have done for us. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing. 
For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.